Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. We have a lot to study this morning, so let's get right into it. We're going to start a new series in this book today, and Lord willing, we're going to be studying it for quite a while. And we're going to look at the early church, what the Lord wants to teach us about how the church started, about its attitude and its priorities and its effectiveness, and what all that says to us. We want to be a church that emulates what happened in the days after Christ returned to heaven and the Spirit came to empower His disciples. Acts really stands as the ideal. It stands as the model of what the church, the body of Christ, should look like. And if we want a model, or some would say a vision, even though that word can be overused and misused, but if we want a model of what the church should be, we need to study Acts in depth. Now, some people would say that that's trite. And they would say that the thinking of the day is that we have to adapt our methods and we may even have to adapt the message in order to be effective and relevant to a world that's increasingly dispassionate about the Lord. But the ironic reason that we've come to that flawed conclusion is because the church has gotten away from what made the early church so effective. Hear that this morning, because that's going to be a theme throughout our studies. The church has gotten away from what made the early church so effective, and it had nothing to do with cleverness or strategy or anything like that. In fact, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to be hard-pressed to find any evidence that the disciples ever even thought or used those words, let alone practice them. All we see in the book of Acts is that they were spirit-filled and they were spirit-empowered and they were spirit-led. And everything flowed out of his enabling and his direction. We're going to see that they were not like the world. They boldly and uncompromisingly stood for the Lord in order to reach the world. And how many know that's the only way we're really going to reach people for Christ? They crossed cultures. They crossed nationalities and religions. They challenged kings and rulers and high priests and religious leaders and people who worshipped pagan gods, not by compromising their convictions, not by, uh, but by talking about them. And thousands and thousands of people came to Christ because of that. Now, they disagreed. They had times when they were in crisis with each other. And they had their own biases and opinions challenged. But they were unified in a way that we've never seen. They were focused completely on the calling the Lord had given them. And even their differences never hindered the ministry. In fact, sometimes they expanded the ministry. They did miracles and they experienced miracles. But it never caused them to become arrogant. It never caused them to take God's work for granted. It never caused them to say, we need to take credit because we did that. Look at that. That was so amazing. Look at what we've done. Instead, all it did was remind them of God's sufficiency. Bottom line is they were unashamed, they were unafraid, and they were unstoppable. And most of the reason was because they called on the Lord with great fervency and they were completely dependent on the Lord. Now, is there any way that we as a church can say that that description that I just gave is not God's desire for this church. 
Is there any way we can look at that and say, God wants something different. He wants us to figure it out. When we study Acts, we're going to see that this is the kind of church that God wants. Not just for us, Harbor Rock Tabernacle, but for every church that loves Him. For every church that preaches His Word. For every church that wants people to know Christ as Savior. And yet, we would be very remiss to say that these statements describe the state of Christianity in 2011. We would not be able to say that truthfully. The church does not have this kind of character. It does not have this kind of influence. And yet, how different would our world be this morning if we did all look like this? How different would the culture be if the church was like this? Now, before we think about dismissing the concept that the early church is our model, that that's kind of outdated and not relevant, we need to look a little bit more closely at what made the early church so powerful and so effective and what caused their ministry to literally change the world. And we'd be lying this morning to say that the world doesn't need change, right? Not the kind of, you know, political rhetoric that politicians use. Oh, we need to change this and change this and it's going to be wonderful. Everything's going to change and change and change and change. I'm not talking about that. Talking about a deep spiritual change that moves people and nations away from the corruption of sin and moves them toward the love and mercy and holiness of God. Ten years ago, our country changed forever in one morning. And I was thinking this week, it's actually kind of hard to remember what life was like prior to 9-11 in every way. From our sense of safety and security to not dealing with the inconveniences and the intrusions now that are, that are necessary to kind of provide this new level of safety to that little feeling in our heart and mind that, that this really is the end times. That, that what Jesus told us about was coming and how it would look and how we see it described in First and Second Timothy and, and what we know about the end of the age, that, that that really is now what we're in, that everything's lining up. And then you add the escalating tension in the Middle East. The Israeli embassy in Cairo this week was, was overthrown and, and protesters came in and, and Israel had to send in their military jets to pull their diplomats out. And then the, the ambassador to Turkey was expelled and, and the Palestinians are now going to the United Nations and seeking statehood. And the world should be saying this morning, Israel, we're going to stand for you against the extremism that wants to wipe you off the mat. But nobody's standing with Israel except the United States, and that's even shaky. We can see it all. We can see all the little pieces that, that will so easily come into place when Christians are gone. And we can see how easily people will be duped, and they'll believe the lies of the Antichrist as he rises up, and they'll give up their freedoms voluntarily, and they won't even care that they're gone. Ten years ago, in the days following 9-11, it, it didn't seem like it would maybe be this way a decade later because as we tried to process the attacks and realized that normal wasn't normal anymore, you remember? There was suddenly a, a huge rush to find God. It's hard to remember 10 years later. But the fact that life was taken so quickly 
And that played out live on TV as we watched 3,000 people just die before our eyes. And, and, and there was nothing that they could do in their daily t- routine to, to prevent that. One New Yorker wrote this week, it changed everything. It marked a psychic shift in our town between safe and not safe. It marked the end of impregnable America and began an age of vulnerability. It marked the end of we are protected and the beginning of something else. And that hit everybody very hard. And those even especially who didn't have faith in Christ, suddenly everybody started to think about God again. And church attendance, I don't know if you remember it, church attendance all of a sudden spiked. And people started acting differently toward each other and and being kind toward each other, even in New York. I know it's hard to believe. And there was a sense, maybe, there was a hope among Christians that maybe finally this would be it. This would be the event that might spark a little bit of revival. That, that maybe people would finally get it and start to trust in the Lord. But it was very, very short-lived. Franklin Graham wrote an op-ed piece in the Washington Post this week. Listen to part of what he said. It's going to be a long quote. Ten years ago, Americans were unapologetically calling upon God. We were praying for comfort and strength for families who lost sons and daughters, husbands and wives. We were asking God for his hand of protection on our United States of America, something Americans have been asking for since our founding more than two centuries ago. I remember when then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani held a prayer vigil at the site of the Twin Towers as our wounds and emotions were still fresh and raw. I was among those asked to lead in prayer, and I'll never forget the image of firemen and rescuers suspending their work for one hour as we invoked the name of God, the highest power in heaven and earth. It seemed, at least for a time, that people of both parties, all faiths and races, men and women, boys and girls, were sensitive to our total helplessness apart from God and His divine power and unconditional love. It was a tragic yet beautiful time to be an American. So how is it, in ten short yet pain-filled years, that the mayor of New York would organize an anniversary service without a single prayer? Ignoring God altogether can be dangerous, for why would he come to the aid of a people who are ashamed to even call on him? Indeed, it's faith that sustained those affected by the senseless act of terror. Ten years ago, my father offered these words, we desperately need a spiritual renewal in this country, and God has told us in his word time after time that we need to repent of our sins and return to him, and he'll bless us in a new way, end quote. You know, as we look at Acts 1, it hit me this week that the disciples found themselves in a very similar situation to the climate that we're in in September 2011. Their nation was confused spiritually. People had become very interested in the Lord for a while, but now we're kind of fading away with it. And we can even go to this point. Religious extremists had committed a very public murder. The situation, it struck me, was very different. And now the disciples, as we start Acts 1, find themselves in a minority. And they're struggling to to know how to stand for their convictions. And, And they're unsure of what to do next. As the Lord has told them, go into the world and make disciples. Get out, go, you have a job now, you have a commission. I want you to go out into the world. And now, Jesus is preparing to go back into heaven 
and they actually get it. He's going. And the disciples now are at a place of a very interesting and serious choice. Will they continue to serve the Lord faithfully when he's gone? Will they be willing to be on the front line, to to be at the center of all the attention and all the controversy without Jesus there to stand for them and protect them? Because they know how weak they are, even in Acts 1. What are they going to do next? There is significant uncertainty, and they're still trying to understand what's happening and, and what their role is. Look at what Jesus tells them here in the start of Acts 1. Luke is writing. The first account I composed, Theophilus, the word means lover of God, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you have heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, verse 6, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or epochs with the Lord has Uh, fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost remotest part of the earth. And after he'd said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you've watched him go into heaven. Now for 40 days, 40 being the number in the Bible uh, of testing and change, for 40 days Jesus has provided proof of his resurrection. And there's no question at this point, we see that from the early verses, that it's authentic and it's convincing. And then during those 40 days, he teaches them about the kingdom of God. Now, that phrase is very prominent in Christ's teaching. And literally, it just means God's rule over all things. God owns everything this morning. This is not in dispute. It's a fact. God is the authority over everything. He's the creator of everything. He owns everything. He answers to nobody for that. He rules everything. His kingdom is as wide as we can imagine, and it goes beyond that. It's eternal, and it's unquestioned. He's sovereign over all things. His reign is not limited by geography or nations or or politics. He has all authority over humanity, and while that's ongoing, while he has that authority now and always has, there is also a plan down the road when eternity starts to shape out, that he will literally have a thousand-year reign in Jerusalem. So the kingdom of God is both now and in the future. It is eternal and it is practical. So when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about Christ 
ruling over the body of believers, that is the church, until he returns. And that fits into the eternal kingdom, which is filled and will be filled by all those who believe. So Christ, as he's preparing to go, is saying there's a kingdom that's always existed, that will exist, that one day will exist back in the city and will exist for all eternity. But the disciples don't quite get all the implications of that. It's clear from their question in verse 6 that, that they're still a little confused. So they come to him and they say, Lord, tell us, what's the timetable? When will Israel be fully restored? Is, is this now what's happening? Or are, are you now bringing the nation back together? Is, are we going to be one again? Because when they went into captivity in Babylonian and Assyria, they were scattered and not everybody came back. The nation at this point is still fractured. The Romans are there. They're kind of overseeing the nation. There's still not a sense from the Jews that they're free, which is why Jesus comes and, and he's announced by John the Baptist. And when people start to look at him, they say, this is the guy. Not this is the Savior. Not this is the Messiah. Not this is the Redeemer. They say, this is the guy to get rid of Rome. We want him now to, to be the warrior. So how ironic is it when he's going into Jerusalem seven days before his resurrection and he's riding a donkey? Not a white stallion, not with a sword, not saying, Rome is out of here, I control them. He's not saying that because he wasn't there to be a warrior, he was there to be a savior. But the disciples are, are, are not quite getting it. They want to know when the nation's going to be restored. It doesn't happen until 1948, and it still hasn't fully happened. So they say, Jesus, when, when is the nation of Israel going to be restored? When will you restore that kingdom? Jesus says, I'm talking about a bigger kingdom here. Yes, I care about Israel. Yes, I still have a plan for them. But, but my kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And it has more of a purpose than just occupying land and existing and maintaining. The people in this kingdom, look at it now, have a calling to live for the kingdom and to serve the king and to defend his name and to tell others about his love and mercy and forgiveness. So when the disciples ask this kind of uh, misguided question, Jesus says, don't worry about that. Don't get preoccupied now with the times and the epics and what's going to happen and who's going to be in power and when Israel's going to be reestablished. I'll take care of that. What you need to focus on, disciples, and what we need to focus on, church, is the restoration and the ongoing spiritual kingdom. Focus on that, disciples. There's a calling now. There's a job to serve and represent my kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit who's about to come. That's a good reminder for us on this day and with an election coming up. Listen, we can get preoccupied with the tragedy of 9-11 this morning and it should still sober us, but let's not forget that that attack was not political. It was not national. It was spiritual. And in a large part, it was designed to dissuade us from supporting Israel and to test the spiritual character of this nation. And we have failed on both counts. And let's not get too preoccupied about the election next fall. I'm not saying don't take an interest and be informed and don't be ready to vote your convictions. I'm not saying that. I'm saying let's not forget 
that this election coming up is not as much about political ideology and the economy as much as it is about devaluing the word of God and the spiritual direction of our nation. Don't get caught up in economic policy at this point. Listen, nobody can figure out, or they would have by now. Not one politician today has a clue what to do with the economy. What it's about is spiritual. And Jesus is saying to them and to us, don't stress about this kingdom. Worry about my kingdom. Do the work of the kingdom of God. Now that wasn't a calling that was going to be easy for them, especially with Jesus leaving. They're not going to have his presence there every day. And that potential alone will make them sad and distraught and insecure. And while he's saying the Holy Spirit's going to come at some unknown time in the future, the Holy Spirit's not going to be visible to them, and they have to be wondering how this is all going to play out versus Jesus being there every day. Not to mention the volatility of the situation that they're facing. Not to mention that the Jews are angry over the reports of Jesus' resurrection, and the Romans are angry and embarrassed that something happened to the body and they didn't guard it well. And the nation's more confused than ever about what to believe. And now Jesus is saying, be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, where everybody hates you, and, but, but don't stop there, disciples. Now go into Judea, where you won't be as protected. And then go into Samaria, where everybody really hates you. And then, I'm not done there. Go to the remotest parts of the world where nobody knows you. And they don't know about me. And they haven't seen me. And then when he gets done saying this, he ascends into heaven and he's gone. Think about that. We've studied this passage so many times, we can quote Acts 1.8. But, but think about the actual events and how that played out. He doesn't say... This is how you're going to do it. This is your master strategy. You need to divide up into teams. You need to work this way and this way. You need to develop a plan, put out a vision statement, go this way. John and Peter, you guys go into Judea. And Bartholomew and Thomas, you guys go into Samaria. And some of you that like to travel go into the uttermost parts of the earth. And everybody, all right, let's have a strategy session. I'm not being demeaning to strategy. I'm just saying this is what Christ is doing. You will receive power. And I want you to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and talk about me. Now I'm gone. And they're standing there. And Jesus goes up into the clouds. What do you think they're thinking? What do you think is on their heart? Not only the sadness of seeing him leave, but the complete feeling, I believe, this is my opinion, the complete feeling of inadequacy. Luke says in verse 10, they were gazing intently at the sky. And the angel's words even suggest that they kept watching and watching and watching. Is he going to come back? Please come back. Come on. Come on. Clouds part. He's got to be right there. He's just waiting. Come on. Come on. Is he coming back? Come on. They just keep watching. And he's gone. And the angels say, we're looking at the sky. He's coming back. And then the angels disappear. Now what? 
In verse 4, look at it. Jesus had commanded them. That's a strong word. He commanded them, don't leave Jerusalem. But it would have been so easy at this point to go back to Galilee. Guys, I'm weary. It's been an amazing three years. Let's go home for a bit. Remember, after the resurrection, they ran back to Galilee and started fishing. Let's go home. Let's, you know what? Man, weary. Let's go see our families. Let's go back to work for a little bit until the Holy Spirit comes. Don't know what that's going to look like, but I, I, guys, I need normal. Let's, let's get back to normal. Nothing's been normal for a while. It would have been so easy to slip back into a life that didn't require strong conviction and boldness that didn't require them to do something that that they had been reticent to do because less than 50 days before, they were still debating who's the greatest and what should we do and, and, and and what is my place. Now, 50 days later, Jesus is gone. And it would have been so easy to go back to what they knew and what was comfortable. It's always tempting to move toward what's easiest, isn't it? To take the broader road and be content with a smaller, kind of more relaxed calling and just kind of find our way and work it out a little bit instead of the high calling that the Lord has given us. I'm sure it had to cross the disciples' minds, maybe even right here, which is why Jesus said, don't leave town. Just wait for the Spirit. Because that life in Galilee had to be looking real appealing right now. But that wasn't what they were called to now. They had a new calling. They, their lives couldn't be the same anymore. They had seen too much and they knew the difference. Remember after 9-11, how many people joined the military? They saw what happened in New York and D.C. and Pennsylvania and they recognized that everything had changed and now there was a battle to fight and the enemy, while elusive, was strong and resilient and had to be defeated. When I see those pictures of those planes hitting the Twin Towers and people jumping 100 stories to their death to escape the flames and the towers collapsing, when we see that, there's no way to feel passive or disaffected. Never forget that morning. I was in my bedroom in Illinois. I had a brother in Brooklyn and a brother-in-law in Midtown Manhattan. Jacob was two. Annie was ten months. And I watched that horrible devastation on TV. And I knew in my spirit, nothing will ever be the same again. And now we see that. And we've seen too much firsthand. And we know that the rules of engagement have changed, and now there's a new calling as a nation that's still ongoing, one that requires sacrifice and strength and resiliency. We know that in our gut as Americans, but now take it to a much higher level. How much greater is our calling as disciples of Jesus Christ? How much greater is the calling as citizens of the kingdom of God when the battle has changed so much? Listen, you guys are old enough to know 20 years ago, the battle didn't look like this. And I'm not just talking about 
I'm talking about leadership. I'm talking about the rise of other religions. I'm talking about the weakness of the American church. We have to decide whether we're going to engage in this battle or not. So much hinges in Acts 1 on the choice of whether the disciples will engage. And yes, God is sovereign and God can accomplish anything that he wants. So even if they desert him like they walked away from Jesus in the garden, God could still draw people to himself. But notice, that's not what he chose to do. He entrusted the gospel, listen now, and the reaching the world for Christ to no more than 120 men and women who at that point in history are the only ones that are going to stand for him. Are we going to go back to Jerusalem and wait? Or are we going to go back to what's easier? Everything rests, look at verse 8, everything rests on their response to the promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There are two primary distinctives in that verse. One is that there would be power through the Spirit and that that power was meant for them. And the second is that the Spirit was the determining factor in their effectiveness. Now let's quickly look at both of them and apply it to our lives. The first truth we see in verse 8 is that the Spirit gives us power. It is one of the most essential and foundational reasons why he came and why he indwells and why he fills us. And that word has stuck with me. It has two main meanings. The word power has two main meanings. It means strength and it means ability. So not only does the Spirit give our lives and faith a spiritual potency and vitality, he also gives us the confidence and courage and enables us to fulfill our calling. Do you know there's never a deficiency in what the Spirit does? Hear that this morning. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You're hopefully filled by the Holy Spirit of God. There is never a deficiency in what the Spirit does. He never lacks the ability or the power or the capability to do what he's been sent here to do. But how many times do we approach the word of the work of the Lord and we say, well, I'm kind of hesitant because I don't really feel ready. How often do we shy away from completely trusting the Lord, especially when it requires taking a stand and doing what's right for his name? Because we don't really believe that we'll be able to handle the pressure. Listen, that is not Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8 says that the Spirit gives us strength and ability. So if you and I are yielded to the Spirit and we're filled with His presence and we're seeking His leading, listen now, this is a strong statement, there is no way we will feel weak or inadequate or ill-equipped. If the Spirit of God has you this morning, if you're yielded to Him, if you're living in His power, there is no way you can say, I can't do it. And the converse is true. If we are feeling that way, then what does it say about our dependence on Him? Now that leads to the second truth. That the Spirit's power and leading, this is such an important phrase for our lives and for our church. The Spirit's power and leading is what determines our effectiveness as disciples. Now we'll look at it over the next few weeks in our study. 
But it is fair to say that based on the lack of priority on prayer in churches and, and, and vision statements that focus solely on strategy, this is the main reason why the Church of Jesus Christ has become so impotent. We have replaced the Holy Spirit with everything else, but the Spirit, Acts 1.8, is the key. Now that's uncomfortable for a lot of people, either because they misunderstand Him or because they want something more tangible. But we are told from the text that this is how we're supposed to live. Look at three main things and we'll pray. Number one, verse 8. Without the Spirit, their efforts would be a failure. Any thought of running away, any thought of starting the ministry without His power, that would be an unmitigated disaster. That's why Christ says to them, wait. In life and ministry, nothing is successful without the Lord's help. We are going to stand for that as a church. We are going to believe that as a church. And we will only move forward under that thought. Nothing will be successful unless the Lord's hand is on it. So we cannot be effective witnesses. We cannot fulfill our calling without the Spirit's help. Now, look at the second thought, verse 8. With the Spirit, victory and success is certain. They already have an advantage as they begin the ministry because Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to give you power. Power to understand and teach the truth, John 16. Power to convince skeptics, Acts 6. Power to influence people's conscience, 2 Corinthians 4. None of which they have at this point. At this point, they're still weak, feeble, hesitant, doubtful. They, they still don't know what to do. But Christ says, just wait. Because when my spirit comes on you, you are going to do amazing, amazing things. And church, he's telling us the same thing. When my spirit comes on this church, I'm going to do amazing things. Not for you, not for your attention, not for your glory, not so people would say, wow, but for me. Third thought, verse 8. Waiting for him to come would build their faith and test their commitment. You would think that with Jesus leaving, that he'd want them to get right to work. But, but listen, the greatest maturation often comes from having to wait. Oh, that principle's so hard for me. Because I'm so impatient. But maturation comes from waiting. The disciples were impulsive and it would have been natural for them to rush ahead and do what they thought is best. But that's not how the Lord calls us to live. The first test of life without His presence. Look at what He says. Stay here. Don't go back to what's easy and comfortable and don't get stressed and try to figure it all out. Disciples, wait. Power is coming. You will be effective beyond what you can imagine. You will have strength and ability that you cannot explain. Just wait on Oh, church, we need to hear that word this morning. I need to hear that word this morning. This week has been crazy.
crazy. We've got buildings all of a sudden popping up, becoming available. We've had two churches call us this week saying, do you want to share space? We're trying to get the details done on the Elmwood Park building. And through all of it, on all these phone calls and meetings and going to see stuff, I just kept being impressed by the Lord. You just need to wait on me and get my discernment. You can look at anything you want, but until I'm in it, don't bother. You know what it is for you. So the question is, are you waiting? Are you distracted and jittery, kind of moving around, trying to figure it out, trying to find some comfort level, trying, trying to get in the right place? Are, are you not really content, listen now, for the Spirit to lead? Or do you look at it and say, I'm going to rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him and I'm going to get my heart ready because when he moves, I'm going to go with him. And when God instructs me and leads me, I'm going to go with him. It doesn't matter how old you are, how experienced you are, what your life situation is. Listen, the Lord's sensitive to that, but that's not going to hinder him from calling you to something very specific. And every single person in this room that loves the Lord this morning has a calling from the Lord. We as a church coming up on one year together. Isn't that hard to believe? We have a calling as a church, and that calling is starting to be refreshed. And now the Lord is saying, maybe a building, maybe some land, expansion of ministry. I'm just trying to discern it. Are we going to work on our own ability or on the leading of the Spirit? Let's bow our heads together. I want to ask you, just be still for just one minute. How's the Lord speaking to you this morning? Maybe you're here and you're like those people after 9-11. Nothing, you, you kind of get serious about the Lord at one point in your life, but, but now there's not much there and your heart's kind of dull and there's nothing that really stirs you. And you're hearing this, but it's just kind of, just kind of bouncing off the top of your head. Let me ask you this morning, what would convince you? God himself came in human flesh to take away our sins and to draw you to himself. There's not more that he's going to do. Maybe you're scared or uncertain like the disciples had to be, but, but you don't need to be because Christ has the power to set you free. And he has the power to strengthen you and give you the ability to walk with him. And that hesitation you're feeling, and maybe you felt it for decades, maybe the Lord's been calling you toward himself and you just keep kind of putting it off. Listen, it's not going away. He wants to redeem you. He wants to save you. He wants to give you a new life. How are you going to respond? Or maybe you do know him and maybe you love him, but the Lord's calling you right now to be still and wait so you can be cleansed and prepared. And he wants you to get that calling in your heart and mind so you can serve him. But what is that easy, comfortable thing that's tempting you right now? It's saying, oh, 
believer, just stay put. You don't, you don't want to do that. You don't want to follow the Lord into a, a new direction. That, that's going to challenge you too much. Can you be content this morning to trust the Lord and to rely on His power? Listen, I feel that. The only way we will be successful, the only way we will be effective is if the Spirit of God keeps moving us and we keep following. Lord, you are so faithful and you're so good and we're so feeble and so weak. We praise you this morning for the promise of power. We praise you this morning for the reality of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And Lord, you have plans for us individually and as a body. You have plans for us that you want us to prepare for and want us to submit to. So Lord, may our hearts be in line with you. And where there is hesitation and where there's a desire to go back to what's comfortable and easy, Lord, we pray you'd break us of that. Even remove it from us if that's what's necessary. So we would be filled with your power. Strengthen us, Lord, for the battle that's ahead. We know the time is short. We know that the situation is dire. And you've given us this calling, Lord, to go into the world and be your witnesses. Lord, fill us now with a fervor to do that. Father, as a church, may we look to you and look to the example of the early church as to who you want us to be. Take away fear, Lord. Take away pride so that we can follow you. Lord, we love you this morning. We love you so much. And we praise you and honor you for what you're doing in our lives. Continue to lead us faithfully as you always do. We pray in Jesus' name.